I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. I just was raised in an environment where even when I was pregnant, I was um, always strong, always had a competitive edge, and uh, was always ready to move forward regardless of organizational change. I came to realize that people need to connect. They need to know when and how you might be feeling vulnerable as a leader, and that I had to express that in order for them to feel that I trusted them. Chris Garrett is a top executive with Fifth Third Bank Corp., one of the largest banks in the country. It was clear to her that she needed to make a career move when her organization was acquired by a larger company and her responsibilities shifted away from her ability to focus on clients. Always having been driven and ambitious, her strong self-awareness contributed to her career success. She listened and changed behaviors by accepting constructive criticism and believes it's important for women to encourage this. Chris always asked for the compensation she deserved if she did not believe she was being paid fairly. This is a wonderful podcast with Chris Garrett. I want to take a minute and thank our sponsor, Aspire Healthy Energy Drinks. I was introduced to Aspire when I interviewed Kim File, a successful executive and part owner of Aspire Brands, Inc. Check out Leading She Episode 13. I love them. Aspire Healthy Energy Drinks are great tasting, lightly sparkling healthy energy with no calories, no sugar, and no carbs. Aspire has healthy caffeine from green tea for smooth, sustained energy with no jitters and B and C vitamins that give me focus. I maintain a healthy and very busy lifestyle and drink Aspire every day. I hope you will try Aspire drinks. You can find nine great sparkling Aspire flavors at AspireDrinks.com. Use the code 10ASPIRE10, the number 10, the word Aspire, and the number 10 at AspireDrinks.com to get the Leading She listener discount. I'm delighted to have as a guest today Chris Garrett, who is Executive Vice President and National Head of Wealth and Asset Management at Fifth Third Bank Corp. Chris is responsible for the oversight of wealth management, including institutional services, wealth planning, private banking. She is also a member of the bank's Enterprise Committee, responsible for leading the vision and strategy for the private bank, as well as driving growth across all Fifth Third markets. So welcome, Chris. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here with you today in person. In person, (laughs) yes. Uh, I'll be socially distanced, yes. That's right. We're socially distanced. Um, I was in uh, Naples this past weekend, and I know there are a lot of Cincinnati people that travel to Naples. Yes, there are. Uh, You probably have a lot of clients down there, and I saw a lot of Fifth Third branches down there. And uh, Fifth Third is a big bank. I'll describe uh, the bank. Anything you want to add here is fine. Uh, As of June 30th, 2020, Fifth Third had $203 billion in assets and operated 1,122 full-service banking centers in Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Florida, Tennessee, West Virginia, Georgia, and North Carolina. It's a very big bank headquartered here in Cincinnati, right? Yes, we are. We're the ninth largest consumer bank in the United States today. Mm. I think we rank in the top 15 in terms of just sheer total assets. Yes, I saw 15 or 16 in the ranking, but so ninth as far as consumer. Yes. Okay. Yeah, very big bank, very big employer here uh, and began, began here. 
And uh, so welcome. Glad to have you here. You've had a long, successful career. Um, why don't you take some time and describe your career for us and uh, you know, summarize it for us and tell us where sure. you've been. Similar to financial services, started out in commercial real estate lending at mm. Valley National Bank in the late 80s in Phoenix, Arizona, Valley National Bank, 200 branches in the state, largest bank in the state. Acquired subsequently uh, in the mid-90s by Bank One that was at the time headquartered in Columbus. I think we have some yes, common, a we common do. background there. And we, uh, through that, I started up the private wealth group that was introduced because when you join, of course, a much larger bank, you have a lot more capabilities, products, and services. And Bank One had a national trust company at the time. Mm -hmm. So I started up that, uh, became a regional director, uh, and we also merged with First Chicago, NBD, and American National Bank. NBD was National Bank of Detroit, as it I remember. It was, yeah. yes. And the headquarters for Bank One moved to Chicago. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. So I began reporting in there as one of the first four regional directors in 1999, uh, running the wealth business for the United States. Uh, right after that, Jamie Dimon joined in about mm. 2000, which was a real seminal time for Bank One. Jamie Dimon had been uh, summarily fired, as he tells the story, from Citibank. Yes. And uh, with Sandy Weil and John Reed and was out of work for 18 months. And when he joined Bank One, he was a very dynamic leader, brought in other leaders to join us. Um, today, I think of people like Charlie Scharf, CEO mm -hmm. of Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. Charlie was barely above analyst level at the time. Heidi Miller, who became CFO of Priceline. Okay. Uh, she was part of that era. Mike Cavanaugh, um, some other really interesting names mm -hmm. that were part of Jamie Dimon's team. Mm -hmm. So had tremendous opportunities through that. What and year was that? With all 2000. Okay. That Jamie mm -hmm. had joined there. Okay. And then four years after that, became uh, acquired by J.P. Morgan, where Jamie, of course, became the successor chairman and CEO that he still is today. But uh, being in the wealth management business, uh, being one of the national, regional and national leaders for 10 years with J.P. Morgan mm -hmm. was a fantastic experience. You can imagine waking up in the wealth management business and having the brand name J.P. Morgan sure. at a global financial services firm. Mm -hmm. So by that, I had relocated to Chicago. I've moved twice with my family for my career and uh, found unique challenges associated with both those moves. Um, I had served in Phoenix for many years as the regional president, in addition to the regional director for wealth management. And I did that for six years. I had close relationships with Janet Napolitano, other uh, really interesting leaders who mm -hmm. were elected officials, Senator John McCain now mm -hmm. passed. Uh, and so really gained a lot of experience in terms of public presence, government relations, uh, you know, economic development in communities that needed our help as mm -hmm. a large corporation, and yet relocated to Chicago to 
be part of that national team, be closer in. Uh, as I always said, flying across three time zones when our headquarters then moved to Manhattan, um, I was never quite at my best. I always would tease my <laughs> colleagues, you've never seen me at my best. I'm getting up at 3 a.m. my time yeah, yeah. to be with you all on three hours of sleep a night. So yeah. those were the years of lots of travel, lots yes. of exciting uh, events, of course, leading up to the great crash in 2009. Yes. Um, or 2008, really, when all of that started. Um, survived at J.P. Morgan through that time, but elected to leave J.P. Morgan and go lead wealth at a regional bank headquartered in Chicago. Uh, working at a global financial services firm, uh, there's nothing like it, tremendous opportunities there. But to get things done for employees and clients became very challenging in mm -hmm. a large bureaucratic company. Sure. Yeah, you said lead wealth. So is that the same as private bank? Yes. Okay. So uh, went to lead private wealth at the private bank, okay. as it was called. It was Got a it. tremendous opportunity um, to be in front of clients, build teams, really build a business for them. Mm -hmm. And I did that for eight or nine years leading up through the CIBC acquisition, fifth largest bank in Toronto, uh, had negotiated the purchase of the private bank, a very, very good transaction, bringing in a wealth of capital products and services from a $500 billion financial institution. Wow to what was a $20 billion financial institution. Wow. So I successfully led the wealth management business through that integration, was mm -hmm. going to become part of their already existing U.S., their domestic wealth management mm -hmm. business. Uh, very significant today, CIBC private wealth management, I think, is 50 or $60 billion wow. in assets under yeah. management, which would place them in the probably top five in the U.S. I think so. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, Fifth Third Bank was calling me. I declined to take those meetings. I was happy doing what I was doing. But at the same time, I felt the opportunity to be the executive leader for a wealth management business at a top 15 financial institution doesn't come along very often. Mm -hmm. So I did take those series of meetings over four or five months and ended up relocating again. I'm all in on Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. We love living here, love being part of a very fast-paced uh, really fantastic organization committed to growth. Mm -hmm. I was very impressed with the executive leadership team at Fifth Third. I felt that they were had aspirational goals, but they needed someone with the skills and experience to come in mm -hmm. and, and take wealth into the next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got great experience really focusing on private banking. And in the 80s, I think when you were with Valley Bank, I was with a bank called Winters Bank in Dayton, Ohio. And Bank One bought Winters Bank, very two different cultures. Yes. Uh, Bank One being more consumer oriented, Winters Bank being more commercially oriented. And okay. back, back then it was, you were either, either more of a commercial bank or you were a consumer bank and right. Bank One was different than Winters. And I remember private banking was really just being developed at that time. Mm. In other words, really boutique-y kind of service uh, to, uh, at that time it was doctors and uh professionals, executives with NCR at the time, Mead, 
uh, Mead Paper. And mm -hmm. so it, you were probably there at Valley Bank at the time when private banking was really beginning, right? Yes. It's interesting, uh, the nuances that you talk about with commercial and consumer. Because I came from the commercial side of the bank, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything but commercial real estate developers and business owners. Yes. So those were my target clients, mm -hmm. and I went after them. So I really didn't do the executive professional segment. We went after the complex, uh, the individuals who were entrepreneurs okay. and earning and creating significant wealth. Yes. I mean, these are, you know, commercial real estate and it's boom time. Yeah. I helped a lot of developers take their equity out of their businesses. They replaced their equity with institutional mm -hmm. capital. Mm -hmm. And they were then able to plan for their families. Mm -hmm. And so we always led with planning and advice uh, mm -hmm. for a fairly sophisticated client, right. client segment. And through that, we had a lot of success in marketing invest, investment management. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. that, that Bank One was anxious to get out beyond the consumer segments right. and into the more complex high net worth yes. and ultra high net yeah, worth families. And those are my clients. I mean, yes, commercial real estate developers, are. Are. I finance them. I don't like them to take equity out unless it's right. through debt, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, we've, I'm sure, had a lot of the same experiences in well, you banking. Thrived, you thrived in commercial real estate a lot longer than I made it through. Oh, well, I had a couple uh, boom and bust It times. has aged me. <laughs> there have been a lot of cycles that I've been through. But uh, you've been through a lot of acquisitions and uh, yes. big banks buying the smaller banks and uh, the big behemoth buying kind of a mid-size bank. You were with Private Bank when CIBC bought Private Bank the yes. same year you joined Fifth Third. Tell me about what was going on. You, you were with Private Bank. CIBC bought them. I'm sure the culture changed. And yes. just tell me, is there a story there with deciding to... This isn't working for me. I'm going to make a change after all. Yeah, I think so. Uh, first of all, I had become used to being the executive leader yes. <laughs> and the decision maker for almost every aspect of the business, including uh, being part of the board, trust committee, mm -hmm. uh, meeting with regulators extensively, making all the strategic decisions. And uh, I welcome the opportunity with CIBC to engage in what should the long-term strategy be for the mm -hmm. business. Uh, they had a conglomeration of U.S. wealth management businesses together, but it became apparent that it would take years yes. to make decisions to achieve full integration mm. of all of their U.S. wealth management businesses. And they were driven by common platform, which mm. is extremely important. I'm a big believer in the more, you know, common systems and common platform having the right controls in place. Right. It just became apparent that would take years. Yeah, and that was probably something where you really wouldn't be focusing on what you wanted to focus on, I exactly. assume, right? Which is the client. Right. That's more my thing. So it sounds like it became apparent that things were something outside your control, right? A merger. Um, yes. It's like, okay, we're going to be part of CIBC. And you're like, okay. And then you mm. say, I'll help you with the integration. And then you realize that it was such a big acquisition that it was going to take a long time. And that would take a lot of energy to do that. So you opted to... Um, really move out to move up and be the executive in charge again. Yes. Okay. 
And I've welcomed the opportunity. It, it made me think of when J.P. Morgan bought Bank One, it really took three to five years mm-hmm. to yes. achieve the true synergies mm-hmm. because you are trying to do it in a way that's least disruptive to the clients right. mm-hmm. and retain those clients through change. So change tends to go slow. Mm-hmm. And at a global firm like J.P. Morgan and CIBC, systems are all important. Mm-hmm. And the ability to get everybody onto common systems can take years. Mm-hmm. I've so, seen a lot of bank mergers yeah. in my in my career, as you have, and I never really believe that I've seen a bank yet that understands what's involved, mm-hmm. really the in the in the details, in the real like day to day, making sure that you take this and this and put it together into this, though, so it works. I've never seen a bank that really has understood what they bought. Well, they uh, I think that's a great observation, Susan. And I'm smiling because they also tend to hire a lot of consultants <laughs> <laughs> through that time frame. It's good to be a consulting right. firm, uh, like, advising well, I'm gonna, banks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what you did wrong or why right. you shouldn't do that, but they want to do it anyway to increase yes. stock price or of course. You know, stock value, whatever. Yeah. So they do it anyway. You talk about career... Um, being in phases, um, talk about the various times in your career when when you talked about being being young, and I was like this too in my twenties, where you were getting a lot of responsibility for being so young. Yes, and then the next phase of uh, raising your children, and then the next phase, which is sort of like empty nester, sort of like uh, uh, in the final phases of your career. I assume talk yes. about the phases. Well, uh, another. Uh, themes that we have in common. I was promoted at an early age to leadership roles. Mm -hmm. I think I was around 25 or so. And I had not only a really great mentor, uh, a male figure who really uh, fostered, you know, I had a really strong worth ethic. I was ambitious and driven Mm -hmm. in my 20s. Me too. And I wanted Mm -hmm. opportunities. I worked. I canceled vacations. I jumped into any deal team that I could get into. And he really rewarded that. He said, you know, a lot of people here aren't working nearly as hard as you are. Mm -hmm. And he also had more women on the team. Hmm. And so he afforded me. So not only I think about everyone says, you know, you need mentors, uh, which we all do. But he was also an advocate. I mean, he turned that mm-hmm. into something that fundamentally, you know, changed my path forever. Right, because into he was leadership behind you roles. and people was, were listening to yes. him. Yes, right. and he promoted me, and there were tangible mm-hmm. outcomes from yes. that mentoring relationship. But I also think, too, that as um, he had daughters— And men that I've worked for over the years or with over the years that have daughters, they're all in. Yeah, Um, most of the time. Not always, but it's good for for, um, men that tend to have gender bias to have a daughter. Yes, (laughs) exactly. It's very helpful. And also, I think taking constructive feedback, Mm -hmm. he gave me a lot of uh, feedback. So early stages, ambitious and driven, wanted every next opportunity. Um, I always wanted to make sure that I was uh, paid fairly yes, and competitively. And I did have substance conversations from time to time around compensation. Mm-hmm. You know, I was highly aware of kind of what was going on in the marketplace, especially you're a small, fast-growing company. They start to bring in people from the outside. Yes. That you instantly say, well, gosh, I've been here working really hard, and now they brought in some big gun, paid a lot more money. Even yes. these were two women that came in. Well, they weren't very productive. 
mm. compared to the work that I was producing or the business that I was, de- the new business I mm-hmm. was developing. Mm-hmm. So I went and had that conversation. I got a big raise. Good for af- you. After that. Yeah, good for you. But you have to have the conversations about You have about to have money. the conversations. And because they're not going to come to you and say, you've been working so hard. You're right. doing so much for us. We're going to pay you more. You have to ask for it. You have often. to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Excellent. But uh, so early stages, ambitious driven, mm-hmm. you know, then in the years to come uh, through Bank One, especially I had a big travel job and those were the family raising years. Mm-hmm. You know, you just would try and get a support system in place Yes, that enabled me to work the hours I needed to work to be successful, to complete all the responsibilities I had, but also to engage in travel. Mm-hmm. It was after 9-11, and travel was fraught with issues. The bank was always um, giving you more territory to cover. All my male counterparts had non-working spouses. I was the yes. only one with a working spouse. Yeah. I also had to travel across eight states in the South and the West, mm-hmm. besides going to headquarters at the time in Chicago for meetings. So those years were tough, Uh I really, I had uh, went to three different leadership training sessions where I was away from my family for one to two weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, That's you a know, long time. My husband had a business that was mm-hmm. growing and successful, but he was really on point. We had a full-time nanny. Okay. But uh, I left first thing in the morning to get to work or to the airport, and he was there till 7.30 and had to be home at 5.30. Yeah. So he was very supportive of my career. Um but then we relocated to Chicago with Bank One, and he gave up that job to stay home with the kids. For us, our nanny arrangement, although we'd have very successful relationships with one or two nannies over, say, 12 years, we were very fortunate in that regard. We didn't find that our children were thriving in that environment. Mm, okay. We felt like they needed um, boys, middle school, they needed a full-time parent. So when we moved with J.P. Morgan to Chicago... My husband sold his business in Arizona and stayed home. Okay. How old were your, your boys Ten and at 12. that time? 10 and 12. Yeah. Okay. And it was even things like homework and sports right. and it gets busy carpooling. Mm-hmm. It gets super busy. Uh, you know, our kids had cell phones from when they were 9 and 11, just so my husband could stay in constant touch with them. Yeah. But those were challenging years. Uh, he was home. You know, that was a huge adjustment for him. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have the social life. I was gone all the time. Mm-hmm. He was with the boys on point. So that was a couple years of adjustment for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, until we got the kids in college, um, we were talking about downsizing. Yeah. You've done that. Yes. Uh, I became the breadwinner then, mm-hmm. right? So that right. was a whole new experience for me as well. Yeah, the pressure's on you to bring home Absolutely. And and I don't have that maybe some of the flexibility I had at work. Whereas when I had a working spouse, I almost felt like any day if I really got fed up, I could go in and say, I'm done. <laughs> I didn't feel like that anymore. I have no, two kids different. in high school. Right. I'm catering now to New York. It's J.P. Morgan. I've yeah. got to be there Friday at Midtown Manhattan for meetings. I yeah. paid taxes in Manhattan. Oh. And uh, it just became it just became very unwieldy. Um really difficult to feel I was getting the gratification and the rewards from my life at a global financial services firm Mm -hmm. that were worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. I just didn't feel that sense of gratification, getting things done for clients and employees. Yeah. 
I just was in a whole lot of meetings. Right. So I looked at that a lot differently. Seems like you have a pretty strong awareness of who you are and kind of what works for you. Well, we talked to, you know, I, I tried to stay true and at least self-aware. What's my vision of myself as a woman? Mm-hmm. Who's the woman that I want to be in? Am I staying true to that vision? Mm-hmm. And I was so going to ask you that question. Different stages, yeah. it's hard to do, harder yeah. to do that. You know, after the kids went off to college, uh, I felt it's my time. You know, mm-hmm. I've had my head down. I've worked so hard. I've been the breadwinner. I've provided for my family, certainly in partnership with my husband. Never yes. could have done it without right. all the sacrifices and contributions that he's made. Uh, but I said, I've never lived in a big city in my adult life. Sold the home in the suburbs, moved to an apartment in a high rise in downtown Chicago, and couldn't have had more fun. Oh yeah, living it's, and working in the city. Yeah, now yeah, that's, that's in downtown really fun. Chicago. So yeah. that was great before yeah. coming here. So that's yeah. later stages of the career we mm-hmm. can come back to. But yeah. the times that were fraught with change, raising a family, balancing you know career, working at a large scale financial services firm. I look back on that time now. And I think, how did you do it? I know. I I do the same thing. My husband and I just shake our heads. He's retired now, but we were both working, raising kids, both had demanding careers. And we're just, you know, he (laughs) says it was kind of survival. Okay, what do they need today? Okay, they need money for pictures or lunch. Right. We're taking them to soccer tonight. It's like we did it a day at a time. Yeah. But it was uh, now we're retired. He's he's retired. He's retired. I'm not retired, but he's retired. Takes care of everything. Goes to the grocery and and uh, same same. You know, I love it. <laughs> it's wonderful, and I can focus and be happy at work and yes, all of that. But we just did what we had to do, right? Yeah, to bring it all together. Back I would say therapy helped during then too, and I tried to exercise yeah. and go to some therapy. Exercise Whenever and I, therapy. Exercise okay. and therapy. Those are two themes I'll come back to often. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. We'll we'll come to that. Um, let's talk about the, um, we talked about uh, the Me Too movement and predatory yes. uh, behavior on the part of, of men in the workplace. And what have you seen there? What have you, what do you think about women uh, as far as this around gender bias or advancement today, how the effect and then predatory behavior? Talk about that. I think that uh, I really felt very woke to use that phrase. Uh, reading and experiencing uh, what women shared in their Me Too Mm -hmm. situations. And I thought back and I thought, I don't know that I experienced, you know, my bright line was outright sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And I did not experience that where I felt physically or emotionally uh, unsafe. I can say I didn't either. In environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I talked to my sister, and it turned out she did, Mm -hmm. like some pretty dramatic instances. Mm -hmm. And uh, But what I can say is now I look back through the different lens of predatory behavior, Mm -hmm. of men who made advances to female colleagues who maybe were more vulnerable at a certain time in their career and then did engage in a liaison inappropriate for the workplace today that would certainly not be tolerated, mm-hmm. but where people then, myself included, may have sort of known, suspected, or looked the other way. And you I, will, it, If you went back, you'd say something now? Certainly to the woman to make sure that she was okay. okay. Yeah. But I also will say, unfortunately, 100% of the time, it bounced back on the woman. 
yes. in terms of damage to her career and, not and reputation. To the man. Never to the man. Never to the man. Never yeah, to the I've, man. I've seen that mm-hmm. where it's like, well, you're the one. It's almost like she's the one fully responsible for what Correct. happened. That there was uh, maybe mm-hmm. a liaison and, uh, and yes. a relationship that developed, mm-hmm. and it's really her. Yes, exactly. Which is really unfair. Really uh, unfair. Very unfair. Yeah. Um, I, I think today, I think also men coming up in the corporate world today are different generationally. Mm-hmm. I hope my sons are different generationally. Yeah, I think my son is. He better know better. Than he better know better. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we talk about that, and I think the kids are very attuned today through mm-hmm. education and social media, what's mm-hmm. okay and what's not okay. Yes. And uh, so I think men and women coming up are in a more comfortable Mm-hmm. comfortable um, with each other yeah. in their workplace. Yeah, I think, um, well, back then, back in the 80s, I would say 80s, 90s, maybe 2000s, this this uh, really pronounced predatory behavior was more about power than it was about sex. Mm-hmm. W- would you agree with that? Yes. That that it's really the male sort of superior, mm-hmm. you know, and, and having power over, over yes. her. And you and I were always in a position of having responsibility and right. some level of clout or power. Exactly. Who's going to come on to us? Right. You know what I Didn't mean? Have, yeah. A <laughs> little more risk there. A little more risk on mm-hmm. his part with her. And so mm-hmm. that's what I see. I, I believe, though, in the Me Too movement that you look at the uh, what happened with the women at Fox News, you know, and, right. and uh, Roger Ailes and all that. And it's just like really, really just awful behavior. Awful that's behavior. one thing, you know. Um, but what it's done, I think, to the women's movement and gender bias in the workplace mm-hmm. is that it's caused uh, men to be very, very careful around women and almost to the point of fear that they can't say anything or they can't, you know, look at her or you know, even talk to her. You know, it's just almost like it's there's a backlash there. I think it, the risk there, what you said, could risk women not getting the constructive feedback they need. To develop in their careers, yeah, that that they may be worried that whatever they say to them, that yes, they, you know, it could be really good constructive criticism, like you're saying that you mm-hmm. had early on. That, but they avoid saying it because of any kind of backlash because she's a woman, he's a man. Yes. Okay. I find that in uh, corporate talent reviews, which I've participated at the highest levels in multiple institutions. And uh, in recent years, I find men are more reluctant to um, state, you know, provide anecdotes that give an example of a female colleague's uh, success, as well as areas that they might need to develop in. Mm -hmm. They're less comfortable on the development Mm -hmm. side. If I say it, they breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a woman said it. So yeah, (laughs) it's okay then. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about uh, men playing golf together and men, you know, hunting trips or whatever and exclusionary behavior, which really helps men bond and develop relationships. But because women won't be included, should not be included because, you know, how are you going to go on a golf trip with a bunch of guys? Right. Ski trip with them. I mean, it's just, just, you know, just not something that happens, right? Yeah. So how does it help men's careers? How does it affect women's careers if if this is going on, We exclusionary behavior? I, I think th- through education and uh, c- 
company, big, large company culture today, I just don't see it. I saw it a lot more at a regional bank and mm-hmm. coming up at yeah. smaller institutions. It just doesn't happen today. It doesn't I don't really, see does it. it. I mean, I see buddies. Like I, I was sure. at the airport on Sunday. It's like you see this group of buddies. Now, do they work together or not? I don't know if they do or not. Right. But they're old buddies and they go out and they have their yes. male time together and um but I do think that if uh, you know if guys go out and have drinks together, if they go play golf together, they can develop bonds in ways that uh, women can be left out. You know, can she be successful anyway? Yes. Yes. Uh, but it is sometimes, I think, easier for men because they have that advantage. I do think so. I think it helps for business development, too. Mm-hmm. When you're develop- when you're building a career and you need to be bringing in clients, mm-hmm. um, I probably struggled with that. I started playing golf mm-hmm. uh, when I was in commercial real estate, which was good for business. And I thought, yes. boy, I've really been missing this. Oh, me too. Um, you know, playing in tournaments and doing yeah. some things was sure a lot of fun to be outside the office instead of slaving away. Indeed. Yeah, I love to play so, golf. I didn't um, love it at the beginning, but I knew I had to. Yeah. But I do think that uh, being competitive and ha- being able to play golf, I think that's an important skill. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Susan Berry, who we were talking about, yes. played golf on the women's team at Illinois. Okay. And boy, she's the one we used at CIBC. We'd CIBC, send her out on the Susan client Berry. calls. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. She did a great job. That was a lot of yeah. fun for her and for us. Great. Um, let's, let's move on to this one, which surprised me a little bit, but I want you to talk more about it, which is you have a practice of not wanting to be alone or have dinner, unless it's a breakfast, with a male colleague or your boss? When I was uh, early stage of my career. Early stage the of The ambitious-driven part of okay, my career. Okay, now I understand. No, today that doesn't today even phase me bo- at all. Okay, all right, yeah, good. It doesn't phase me thinking, at all. Wow, that's, that's interesting. But So you're talking about early on. Early on, okay. just making sure that I kept a pristine reputation. Yes. As you know, Susan, after all the years that we've been in business, <laughs> that's what we have is yes, our reputation. Yes, reputation. Exactly. Absolutely. And I just was sensitive. I didn't want anyone else to be able to shape my reputation right. other than by my own actions. Okay, by drawing a conclusion that he or she is out Absolutely. with the boss. Okay, yes. I got it. And what I always you... made sure before I was engaged or married that when we did have company functions that I got to know, um, of course, I worked with so many men and they were married mm-hmm. and the wives were there. I always made sure to build those bridges with the spouses of yeah. my colleagues that they would feel very comfortable. I've done that too, to really make yeah. sure that you're talking to not just him, but her at, a, at an event. Yes. Many times they you can tell they're uncomfortable because they're like, he's kind of dragging her along to this bank mm-hmm. function, right? Sure. And so if you find some way to relate to her, you know, it does actually help your reputation. You know, it does help your relationship with men. Yes. It's like when, when he, she, get, they get in the car yes. and they go home and she says, I really liked Chris. Yes. So that helps you. Absolutely. I, it is a strategy. <laughs> it is a strategy. You're exactly right. Um, but um, we discussed uh, vulnerability. Yes. And how you use that in your career. And vulnerability is in our early careers it, it wasn't like the Brene Brown era where it's like vulnerability is very good in business. You know, you bring it in, you show them, you know, emotion, you show them who you are. Today, we've got more of an empathic, you know, 
leadership, empathic. We have to make sure our employees feel comfortable, all of that. How do you use, how have you learned to use vulnerability in your career as you lead? I, I think uh, I've had to really come to grips that that is an important element of leadership. Mm. And I did not uh, incorporate that. I just was raised in an environment where even when I was pregnant, I was um, always strong, mm-hmm. always had a competitive edge, mm-hmm. and uh, was always ready to move forward regardless of organizational change. I came to realize that people need to connect. They need to know when and how you might be feeling vulnerable as a leader, mm. and that I had to express that yes. in order for them to feel that I trusted them. Mm-hmm. So I went through that five or six years ago. I really attribute that to going through so many mergers yeah. <laughs> and acquisitions. As I said, it's always good to be the acquirer. Yes. But sometimes I was on the other side. Acquired. And as you know, the uh, the change and just the sheer number of employees exiting. Yes. You know, post every merger. Yes. I didn't have that as a direct um, outcome for my own role, Mm -hmm. but certainly had to deal with that. So I think I struggled to bond with people because Mm -hmm. I was always prepared for the next round of changes. Mm -hmm. So when I worked at a regional commercial bank headquartered in Chicago, which I loved, I loved that job for nine years. I had a wonderful team. I think I still carried with me a kind of standoffish or closed Mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And so I had some feedback on that from the chief human resource officer who really cared about the employees and cared about me as a leader. Mm -hmm. And I was astonished that at a late stage in my career, anybody would dream of giving me any feedback. But when I went to talk with my direct reports together as a group, I did find that they were concerned I didn't trust them. Mm. And trust their judgment, trust them as leaders, and that I was perhaps judging them. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of ongoing. And I it was creating yeah. a lot of stress. I see how that could happen. So I just became more vulnerable and said, Hey, I'm going through this empty nester stage. I've been in therapy this summer. I just want you to know that you're the most important people to me after my family. Right. And I care about each and every one of you. And if I have failed, to tell you that. I am here to tell you that today. <laughs> they all welled up, men and women. And, oh, wow. And we had that moment. That's special. Yeah, special And, time. you know, after that, I said, of course, I promptly went to the chief human resources officer office, Vicki's neighbor. Mm-hmm. And I said, thanks a lot. I've been completely vulnerable and cried in front of my team. Are you happy now? <laughs> but it changed. It had it to have changed. changed the relationship with them. Everybody then understood, said, we were misunderstanding you, misunderstanding your cues. Yes, right. And that was a real moment for me, and I've never forgotten that, and hopefully still carry Mm -hmm. that today as a leader. The message I'm hearing from you, and it sounds like you got this feedback when you were with Valley in in Arizona, and that with your human resources person here, that you are open to feedback. And that's probably a very good message for young women to not resist it, welcome it, and just let it help you sharpen the saw. Let it help you improve who you are and how you're relating to people. Because I've heard it said, you cannot know yourself by yourself. And so other people are reflecting back to you what they see. And if you are open to that criticism and you make changes, it can improve 
a lot of things that you wouldn't have been able to do before, right? I, I think that's probably one of the, mo the, the most important lesson I've ever learned. Mm. That's a really important observation, what you just said, mm. and I hope everybody listens to that. Mm -hmm. I think people too often are thin-skinned. Yes. They take it too personally. Right. It's even when it's the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that you can't change your behaviors, you know, without that kind of feedback. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, I think sometimes when people do get that feedback, they focused on who said it. Yes. Not right. They worry too much about who said it. Right, and what people think of them rather than using it. And uh, the people saying it, that takes a lot of courage to say it. Yes, a lot of courage. A lot of courage, and a lot of people choose not to do it. They'd rather just keep going along, not have right. confrontation, not worry about her you know, getting emotional about it, whatever. Right. And it's really valuable to hear it. Yes. I had uh, another mentor, uh, Steve McClellan Mack, who joined J.P. Morgan. He's currently with Northern Trust, still someone I admire and appreciate. Mm -hmm. I worked for him for five years at J.P. Morgan. He gave me some brutally constructive feedback, a little bit in that same vein, mm -hmm. saying how I was prone to running people over when I wanted to get something done. <laughs> I'm so raising my like, hand. Yeah, so and I said, I looked right at him. I said, well, I can actually think of three or four people pretty specifically. <laughs> and I made amends and I changed my behavior after that. I was embarrassed, you yeah. know, and I, I hadn't considered fully what, you know, the I want people. Right, right. I want people to help me get things done. And of course, they want to help you get things done, right? Of course done, they right? do, yeah. So that was also <laughs> another good piece of feedback. Yeah, you, know? you and I share this. I mean, the ambition, the competitiveness, yes. the desire to strive, drive, right. succeed mm -hmm. can cause us to, and it sounds like maybe with your staff there where you got the feedback where it's like we do I don't want to say look over shoulders, but it's like your work has to be as good as mine. Yes. And it's probably not going to be because I'm mm -hmm. a perfectionist. You mm -hmm. know, so we are kind of like, well, make sure that for the client we have to do. And like, here she comes again. She's t checking on oh me. Oh, my you know? gosh. Yeah. And so we don't realize the impact mm -hmm. of uh, the, the, our drive and our the way our personalities are. But at, over time, fortunately, we finally get it, right? Yes, finally. <laughs> I'm still learning. Yeah. yeah, me too. I am still oh. learning. It comes up. Um when I, uh, one of our last questions here, when I began uh, writing a book about 10 years ago, which is not published yet, the pod podcast is helping me kind of formulate it, I saw over and over, and this is when I, this is one of the reasons I started writing the book, and that is about male-female relationships outside the office and how we have to be careful not to bring those male-female relationships yes. inside the office. And I've done this where... I had an older boss, and I would more look to him like a father. He would treat me like a daughter, mm. uh, male colleagues, brother, sister. Um, some bosses were closer to my age. It might be more of a husband-wife kind of relationship, not in a an inappropriate way or anything, but sure. more of a, you know, that. So the message is, don't be careful not to bring these relationships into the workplace. They have no place there. Correct. Okay. So right. talk about that. I think it's just, I said, avoid the tendencies uh, I have as a mother and a wife to bring those into the workplace. Nobody wants that or appreciates that. It's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's uh, treating everybody gracious, never raising my voice, mm -hmm. being calm, 
mm-hmm. in the face of enormous amounts of stress yes. in a fast-paced environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to not react. Yes. I need to listen, ask good questions, help find solutions, recognize and reward people for escalating problems. Mm-hmm. And at Without, home, I... With solutions, though, right? With solutions, Sure. I mean, sometimes they're just informing. informing and I, I can't mm-hmm. ask 100 questions because they don't have the information. They're just saying, I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. So I've learned over the years to react appropriately, calmly, be poised, and supportive. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's probably different than I react at home if someone spills something or, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I'm I'm saying, why didn't the get beds get made today, you know? And I'm right. a little cranky about that. So I really avoid um, reacting. I'm very conscious of my mm-hmm. tone. Mm-hmm. If I am, uh, want to convey an elevated level of emotion or even bordering on anger, it's usually for a financial result. Mm-hmm. So I tend to moderate my reactions in response to the importance mm-hmm. of what's at hand. Yeah, I get I that. rarely, someone might maybe said, I, I see an invoice for $50,000 I don't know anything about, right? right? That happens. Yes. I'm going to assume that there's good reason that that is showing up in my queue to approve and I don't know something about it. Yes. So it's always giving your counterpart, your colleague, your direct report the benefit of the doubt in every single situation. Yes, that's important. I don't always do that with my children. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. Yes. (laughs) I understand that. This is a really, that's a really good message, really good advice. And I've learned over time to not react and and Mm-mm. pause and not and not be impulsive in my reactions so that's really good but going back to this relationship thing where you have you had this experience where you've seen women do it? Have you done it where you have to be really careful bringing that Yeah, I wince at it. It's almost getting that overly familiar. Okay. Teasing. Yes. Um I avoid both those mm-hmm. with even people I've worked with for years. Okay. Um, teasing can perpetuate, uh, it tends to reinforce where someone might be sensitive about something or they don't feel mm. comfortable. Everybody likes to have fun right. and to laugh. But I try and avoid teasing because it can leave behind a lingering concern. Does she really think that about me? Yes, that's good advice. Um, so I really avoid that. And I've seen people get a little stereotype because other people are either insecure, they're threatened by them, so they start teasing them. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Especially men to women. Yes. To put them in, relegate them. Yeah. Or some like, don't be thinking you're all that or some attribute of that. And we all want to be, you know, collegial and collaborative and kind of slap each other on the bank sometime. But I find that teasing is more often than not hurtful in the workplace. Mm. And it bothers people, and don't they don't feel comfortable because it makes it seem like they're not any fun. But uh, so I really avoid that. Yeah, that's probably really good advice, and I think I've violated this over the years. It's trying to develop a more of a rapport with someone by just sure. yeah, well, you know, you do this on the weekends, and they, yes. You know. Uh, but I think I've gotten away from that mm-hmm. because of just what you said. But I've never mm-hmm. verbalized it like that. Yeah, I'm very mindful of that. Yeah. Last question for you. Um, 
you uh, referenced this a little earlier, but you've asked yourself these questions. Have I stayed true to the kind of woman I want to be, the kind of leader I want to be? And how do you answer that today? I absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of help, a lot of feedback, yeah. a lot of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always want to be better, but today I can look back and I think I've made choices in my career and where I've worked mm-hmm. to be able to stay true to that mm-hmm. and and be able to live in that zone. Yeah, I've seen that just in your career and how you talk about it. And there's a really good message here for women is that if it's not working for you where you are, yes. Um, and uh, we discussed this where it's like don't count on the company to make it right for you. Correct. You are responsible for your mm-hmm. own career. You're in the driver's seat. So if you need to leave to make it right, you need to move to another area of the company, it's your responsibility to take control of that. 100% agree with that, Susan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is so important. I think we all need to be where we are appreciated. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to worry that I'm appreciated or that my work is valued otherwise or that I'm successful where I am. Mm -hmm. I want to be focused on adding value, right, and doing Mm -hmm. the work and building the team and delivering Mm -hmm. on the results. Mm I don't want that other stuff to come into it. I want to be I want to be close to my sisters. I want to be close to my husband. I want to be close to my kids mm-hmm. and uh, live up and I still could be a better friend. That is a yeah, <laughs> that is I'm working something. on that one too. I'm working um, on that one. Maybe um, a woman with some hobbies one day. Yeah, yeah. Well, really good advice. Um just really making sure you're being true to who you are and uh making decisions like you have around that. It's uh It's very impressive, and I want to thank you for joining me today, Chris. It's been great. My pleasure, Susan, very much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.